My guest today is Professor Justin Smith. Justin Smith is Professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Paris. His latest book, Irrationality, a History of the Dark Side of Reason, outlines a fascinating history that reveals the ways in which pursuit of rationality often leads to an explosion of irrationality. Uh, Professor Justin Smith is with me on the phone line. Uh, Justin, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Yes, thank you for having me. Justin, uh, before we discuss the research uh, that you present in your book, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason, uh, please tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your education and about your research. How did you get here where you are now? Oh, it's hard to know where to start. So uh, I am a professor of the history and philosophy of science. My background, my PhD, is in philosophy, in pure philosophy. It's only when I came to France in 2013, I'm, I'm American uh, uh, originally, uh, that I moved into a history and philosophy of science department. For me, that seemed a natural move uh, because the figure I wrote my dissertation on uh, is Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, uh, who was, I think, the paradigmatic rationalist philosopher, and that both with a lowercase and an uppercase R, in the sense that he was both a member of the school of rationalists, but also was more firmly committed to just about anyone in history to the idea that uh, reason is uh, uh, the uh, uh, solution to all problems. Uh, and so uh, I'm somewhat rooted in his work even now, though it was many years ago that I uh, completed my dissertation and I've been working on many other topics, uh, I still kind of come back to him again and again in a way that informs my, my current projects as well. Uh, Justin, rationality can be described as the state of uh, being based on reason. Uh, it is uh, about acting in line with the facts. It is about being logical. Uh, what is the description of irrationality that you adopt uh, in this book? Well, I would, I would add before I go on to irrationality that even rationality is a polysemous term. Uh, it is used in many ways. And uh, I think that for any adequate exploration of the concept, uh, one can't hope to work with uh, concise definition. Rather, what one needs to do is give uh, an exhaustive list of all the different ways uh, it's been used in different places and times. Um, but I think uh, that's not to criticize your definition. Uh, the, 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 what you just said, that it is a, a way of error, that it's, let's say, uh, the, the faculty of solving problems, um, is perfectly good. I would put it, maybe I would also say it's uh, the ability to make the correct inferences from a given set of premises. Um, and so on the shortest definition, similarly, irrationality is simply the failure to make the correct inferences from uh, given premises. Now, of course, uh, one could come back right away and say, well, sometimes we're just wrong. We just make mistakes. And surely you don't want to say uh, someone is irrational who uh, is simply unable to uh, derive the correct conclusion from a given set of premises. And if that's the case, because I think, yeah, that's a reasonable comeback, you would want to say, okay, it's not just any failure to draw the right conclusion, but it's a failure that is rooted in something more than just ignorance, right? It's rooted in something that is somewhat closer the, to the domain of the moral, um, to uh, uh, problems of 
character, to vice, so that when you fail to derive the correct conclusion from a given set of premises, what you're actually doing is, as I put it in the book, uh, refusing to conclude or to acknowledge what you in fact already know, right? Um, and so then irrationality is a peculiar uh, a feature of human life because it blends uh, both uh, cognitive and moral elements together at the same time. Now, of course, I mean, there's a long tradition going back to Socrates uh, uh, in which it makes some sense to say every uh, instance of error is a moral failure. Right. Um, and that seems extreme. Right. Because someone who's, say, on a trivia game show and gets a question wrong hasn't therefore uh, sinned. Right. Um, and so that's obviously not what Socrates means to say. Uh, he means to say something more along the lines of if you don't know, uh, then admit you don't know rather than venturing an answer. Uh, and so I'm not simply extending the Socratic line on this point. Instead, what I'm trying to do is to say that like Socrates, uh, I am acknowledging that the only adequate uh, analysis of irrationality is something that takes it as, again, uh, cognitive and moral at the same time. Uh, you suggest in this book that it is not possible to remove irrationality from human life. And you say that irrationality is ineliminable. Why do you think so? Well, I guess the idea is, um, I mean, I, I'm approaching it at two different levels. I think part of the list of different uh, 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 respects in which we deploy the notion of irrationality, um, in the list that I give, I notice that there are two different levels at which it's used. One is for the individual, um, and the other is for society, right? So you can have a society that is structured irrationally or rationally, um, and within that society you can have uh, individuals who themselves are, say, rational, even though uh, their society is uh, uh, structured irrationally, and vice versa. You can have a rationally, a rationally structured society with a bunch of irrational people moving around within it, right? Now, ordinarily, I think we uh, uh, are best able to see the dangers of efforts to purge irrationality when we consider uh, the, um, the social um, and political dimension. Uh, it's obvious, it's a historical fact that utopian schemes, that is, efforts to uh, uh, plan from the top down uh, social um, system uh, that will leave uh, no kind of room for uh, failure or for uh, deviation from the rules um, has in invariably led to utter failures and usually to a great deal of suffering and repression, right? So, uh, 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 the best answer to the question, why acknowledge that that irrationality is ineliminable, um, it's because we have empirical historical uh, proof uh, that in all attempts to eliminate it at the social level, there's been nothing but terrible failure. And at the uh, individual level, I don't want to say, as Plato says in The Republic, that the soul is the state uh, writ small and the state is the soul uh, writ large, but there are here obviously important analogies between society and the individual, just as uh, uh, societies work best that uh, uh, allow for a certain amount of deviation from rules and in which uh, things are not perfectly rigidly ordered. So similarly in the individual, we're healthier um, if we are not uh, 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 constantly subject to uh, 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 the discipline of reason, right? Um, and again, 
um, um, are, are almost a commonsensical fact. So in that respect, the, the claim that irrationality is ineliminable is not, I think, uh, 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 in any way um, counterintuitive or bold on my part. In fact, it's just an observation of something that is self-evident. An interesting point uh, that you make uh, in your book is that efforts to eradicate irrationality are themselves uh, irrational. Yeah, that's the idea that it's there's sort of a um I don't want to overuse the term dialectic, uh but there's sort of a strange tendency. I mean, I prefer to think of this not in terms of Marxist dialectic dialectics as rather in terms of uh Aristotle and the mean between two extremes. Uh and the uh kind of parable I begin uh the book with is that of Hippasus of Metapontum, who was uh supposedly a member of the Pythagorean cult, um, which was, so to speak, a cult of reason, uh, people who uh, not only valued reason, but, so to speak, worshipped reason. To the extent that when they discovered irrational numbers uh, in the in the event in the in the the, the, the the square root of two, the diagonal of the square, um, they were so horrified that they vowed to keep this uh, secret from everyone who wasn't a member of the Pythagorean cult. So Hippasus uh, uh, accidentally let slip to some uh, non-cult member villagers uh, that mathematics is at bottom uh, fundamentally irrational. Uh, the other cult members learn about this, and they take him out in a boat on the pretext of a fishing trip, uh, and when they're out in the middle of the water, they, uh, they drown him. Right? So this is an outburst of violence as irrational and ultimately ineffective uh, as you can imagine, and it's carried out uh, uh, in the name of rationality, right? And this is likely apocryphal. It likely never happened this way, uh, but still, this becomes kind of the template, I argue in the book, for uh, uh, many, many subsequent moments in history. Another lovely example is in the French Revolution, uh, Olympe de Gouges, uh, who was an aristocratic woman and um, uh, 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 a feminist who uh, wrote uh, 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 ultimately a bold uh, kind of retort to the French Revolutionary Universal Declaration of the Rights of Man uh, in 1791. Um, and the idea was, you know, in French as in English until recently, man was supposed to implicitly include woman. Uh, so she rightly, that is to say rationally, concluded in a sort of logical argument, well, if man includes woman, then the truth value of the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Man will remain the same if I replace each occurrence of man with the word woman, <laughs> right? So she does this, and uh, the Jacobins cut off her head, right? Um, and so this uh, is a, a real historical event um, that follows rather closely uh, the parable of Hippasus of Metapontum. And it happens over and over again. There's, uh, just to give you a third example, um, there's a, a critical thinking movement in the United States called Nexium um, that's currently under investigation uh, uh, because um, a, the, 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 the state uh, believes that it has taken on uh, significant cult-like dimensions um, under a charismatic leader who requires the members to brand their the, the leader's initials on their hips, right? Um, and so this is a movement that starts out noticing and valuing the, 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 the use of critical thinking and ends up um, um, in a rather severe form of self-harm 
and um, subordination to a charismatic individual. Again, that's the classic arc that we see again and again from rationality to irrationality. When Greeks invented reason, uh, and you mentioned uh, Greeks uh, a few moments ago in our conversation, uh, when Greeks invented reason, was that not uh, a rational effort to remove irrationality? Well, you know, I think um, obviously this is something that in the scholarship has been uh, uh, mentioned uh, for many decades now, uh, especially thanks to the work of some classicists of anthropological uh, leaning. I can cite uh, in France scholars like Pierre Vidal-Naquet, and in um, in Austria, I think he's Austrian, he might be German, uh, the classicist Walter Burkert, uh, who have been emphasizing, you know, since the mid-20th century, that, well, in spite of what we, uh, what the philosophers have been saying about the Greeks and what, you know, I think uh, uh, in earlier generations, even elementary school kids uh, learned about the Greeks, uh, they were actually not all that rational. You know, they had um, strange religious rituals and practiced um, bloody sacrifices and um, and uh, mystery cults of all sorts thrived, and so on and so on. Um, and so indeed, uh, there was at a certain moment within a certain narrow uh, slice of Greek society, there was a movement that came to be called philosophy, um, that uh, uh, did indeed value uh, what we now call reason, but even there, even within this narrow slice of the Greeks called the philosophers, it's not so simple. Why? Well, because the term that we translate as logos, uh, sorry, the term logos, which would later be translated into Latin as ratio, and eventually into English as reason, French as raison, and so on. Um, logos is not necessarily, or not at all, um, what we think of as reason in the modern era, when we think about, for example, rationalism in the vein of Leibniz. Um, in the 17th century, or the idealization of reason in the French Revolution, where the revolutionaries seized the Catholic churches and rebranded them temples of reason, right? Um, so what was Logos then? Well, it was uh, often um, a sort of um, cosmic force, so to speak, that pervades all of nature and renders it orderly, right? Um, and this is, uh, uh, that is to say, transforms the chaos into a cosmos. So it was a cosmic force. It wasn't an individual faculty of human beings. Human beings can share in it, um, but it's not their exclusive property, and it doesn't set them apart from the rest of nature, because all of nature is, so to speak, uh, 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 shaped and ordered by logos. That is to say, if you want to use the adjective that derives from that word, all of nature is logical, right? Um, so again, even the Greeks, uh, even the Greeks uh, who did value reason, uh, were not necessarily valuing reason in the same way, um, in the same way the moderns are. There is a social aspect of uh, reasoning as well. Reasoning has an element of debate. Uh, you reason and debate and present your views and try to convince others who might have different views. Uh, can we say that this social aspect of reasoning is fundamentally flawed? It is just an exercise of trying to prove yourself correct, that your viewpoint is a valid viewpoint, and due to confirmation bias, uh, we seek out the evidence that uh, 
supports uh, our views. Well, of course, you know, going back to uh, the earliest uh, period of, well, not the very earliest period of philosophy, because, of course, in the very earliest period, in the pre-Socratic period, philosophy was um, uh, mostly natural philosophy, that is to say, reflection on uh, the fundamental principles of nature that explain the phenomena of observable nature. But uh, not long after Socrates, there's already a very clear uh, distinction between the work of the uh, the, the philosopher who wants to uh, pursue the truth with interlocutors in contrast with the uh, rhetorician uh, uh, who in uh, the Greek context often overlaps with the so-called sophist. And then in the in the classical uh, tradition, um, you have a clear distinction between what it is that a philosopher does and what it is that a rhetorician does. Namely, uh, the rhetorician uh, seeks, to put this in Plato's language, to make the better argument the stronger, uh, and the philosopher seeks to, uh, uh, sorry, to make the, word, the word, to make the worse argument the stronger, and the and the philosopher uh, seeks simply to. Uh, 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 to, to, to get to the truth. And there are other, uh, other distinctions you might add. Uh, the rhetorician uh, probably wants to get paid for this work, whereas the philosopher is supposed to uh, disdain remuneration and so on. And this, of course, gives us the prototypes of uh, the uh, uh, faculties of philosophy and of law, respectively, that would emerge in uh, medieval universities. Um, and even though today uh, we think about uh, studying philosophy as an undergrad, uh, as a good uh, kind of pre-law, course of study, uh, and you know, you go on from your, your early study of philosophy to go to law school. Um, classically speaking, that just doesn't make any sense, because to study philosophy is to uh, become aware that lawyers are sophists, right? That, they, um, that they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in defeating opponents for money, right? And that's not philosophy. Um, and, uh, 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 but that said, uh, if you look at the great, so to speak, patron saint of the lawyers, traditionally speaking, Cicero, um, it's clear that Cicero himself is very interested in the boundary between these two different activities and obviously is aware of the fact that they overlap at many different points. It's strange because rhetoric and philosophy are opposites, but they're also opposites that blend into one another. Similar to Greeks' uh, invention of uh, reason, uh, emergence of uh, enlightenment also seemed to be an effort to be more rational, uh, development of scientific method and critical thinking. Uh, these tools and approaches aim to achieve uh, rationality. Uh, why, in your view, enlightenment does not make us rational? Well, they, they aim to, let's say, enhance, uh, enhance rationality or to correct for errors. And that's uh, something that's very clear in an early author of the scientific revolution like Francis Bacon that, um, uh, that we, or even a few decades later in Descartes, uh, there's a kind of sharp awareness that, um, that we're not outfitted with the best uh, organs uh, with the best perceptual capacities um, to apprehend the world as it really is. Whereas for Aristotle, it's like, why would there be a gap between the way the world presents itself to us and the way it is? Um, so that's a great difference between ancient and modern philosophy. Modern philosophy is about, <laughs> to, to, to invoke the name of your show, it's about bridging the gap, right? Uh, the gap between the mind and the world. Um, 
And so uh, the scientific method then is developed in large part as a way of compensating for the various inadequacies of the way we as individuals apprehend the world, right? Um, and um, um, this is uh, something that develops most of all in the 17th and 18th centuries, there are not tremendous innovations in this period uh, in logic. Uh, logic was a discipline that was uh, more or less, uh, I don't want to say perfected, but developed to a point where the moderns felt like it could not be of any use uh, for what was coming to be thought of as science. Why not? Well, because logic only gives us the uh, bare scaffolding of thinking. Um, and in fact, the moderns were deeply disdainful of the medievals, of the, the people they called the schoolmen who wasted their time with vain and empty logical arguments um, in which you could prove anything about anything um, as long as you started out with the right premises. So in fact, um, much modern philosophy that we think of as uh, wrapped up in the development of modern science, Bacon, Descartes in particular, um, thinks of logic as dusty and, uh, so to speak, uh, passé, right? Um, and so this idea that the two go together necessarily, I think, is uh, part of a much later myth that developed about about the modern period, in particular about Enlightenment. So really quickly, uh, Enlightenment, um, when does Enlightenment start? Are Francis Bacon and Descartes uh, Enlightenment figures? I think that's just a question of kind of arbitrary periodization. You can start it when you want. Um, usually we think of the 18th century, so the century after these figures, after the scientific revolution, as uh, the Enlightenment. And I suppose what's key here, if you want to um, isolate a single element of the Enlightenment uh, that defines it, it's the idea that, um, that individuals are endowed with a faculty of reason, uh, and this creates a kind of moral incentive uh, to cultivate individual reason and to think for yourself, right? Um, and that, uh, that kind of key element of the Enlightenment is also not necessarily there in the scientific revolution. Again, Francis Bacon wasn't saying think for yourself. He was saying think in collaboration with others in scientific institutions, right? So these, it's a very complicated thing. There are a lot of elements there, uh, and some of them that we now run together with one another were in fact in conflict with one another. You have uh, partially answered uh, my next uh, question. Uh, you have touched upon this point uh, while answering the previous question. However, I'm keen to come back to this point because when I read your book, this point is stuck in my mind. You suggest in your book that despite the fact logic and reason are well understood, these methods and practices that were supposed to have been set up to counter irrationality ended up stuck in the very problem that they were meant to solve, and that is irrationality. Talk to us about this point that you make in your book. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's what I was, uh, that was kind of my point about the modern philosophers' uh, disdain for the medieval logicians, right? Uh, the moderns saw the medievals as again wasting their time with uh, with 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 vain logical arguments, vain and empty. The, those are the terms you hear again and again and again in these modern critiques. Um, and the moderns also noticed that the medieval logicians, even though they were purportedly interested in getting at the truth.
reasoning well, um, they spent an awful lot of time producing and going over and exchanging examples of uh, sophistries, right? Um, why? Well, because sophistries are funny, right? Um, and let me just give you one example. I, I forget the, the, the name of the fallacy of composition, sophistries and fallacies. So the fallacy of composition, it works a lot better in Latin, but I'll give it to you in English. Uh, this goat is yours. That's one of the premise one. This goat is yours. Premise two, this goat is a mother. Conclusion, this goat is your mother, right? You get, yeah, it works again. It works a lot better if you don't have the indefinite article, which Latin doesn't have, right? Because uh, it just it just follows directly. Um, now, obviously, that's a fallacy, but it's a lot more. A sound and valid argument, right? So uh, one can't help but notice uh, that um, that a logician is almost always at the same time a fallacy mongerer, right? And um, and 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 so 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 then defining the activity as only being interested in right arguments, in right reasoning, um, is to miss a lot of what was actually going on under the banner of logic, which again, to return to my uh, thesis, uh, is just another example of um, rationality uh, spilling over into irrationality. As I put it in the book, uh, a joke for example, that fallacy that I just gave you is a sort of uh, perverted uh, syllogism or uh, uh, a perverted or uh, yeah, but let's say perverted, a perverted logical argument. It's like a logical argument, but it uh, rather than confirming what you were expecting to hear from the premises, it gives you a weird new twist and kind of hits you off guard. But it, so to speak, parodies logical argumentation, the joke. There is a theory, um, uh, th there is a view that brain has two thinking systems. One is fast and quick and uh, it brings us uh, to our decisions quickly. Uh, but this quick thinking system is full of our biases. The second system is slow, but it is thorough. And uh, the second system is closer to the classical conception of reasoning. It allows us to have deeper insights to arrive at a better belief, a good decision. Uh, this second system is slow and costly. Now, other animals can be just fine and get by using this cheaper system. But we humans, where possible, should use this slow and thorough system of thinking. Uh, what is your view on this theory? Uh, sure, yeah, and I mean, that's an important uh, dimension of the answer to the earlier question. Why is irrationality ineliminable? Well, in part because you know we're um, we're responding to olfactory signals we aren't even aware of uh, that make us make you know basic decisions in our life uh, that. Uh, ordinary, let's say, economic rationality, thinking about the long term, um, would, not, uh, would not have us take, right? Um, and so then, just as, say, scientific method was supposed to uh, correct for some of the inadequacies of uh, human perception as individuals, so too might you say critical thinking, the cultivation of reason uh, is a way of correcting for the fact that we have uh, one uh, cognitive system uh, that is um, based on uh, instantaneous 
uh, assessments based on um, things like smell and so on. And it's a good idea to train ourselves not to act too quickly based on that quick system. It's a good idea, but uh, again, you know that system is there for a reason. Uh, it's uh, it's evolved. Um, it serves us well. Or it has served us well in many circumstances. Uh, it would be hasty to, <laughs> to attempt to suppress it. Another point uh, that you touch upon uh, in your book uh, is uh, that uh, we live in a digital age. Uh, we have internet, uh, we have uh, social media platforms uh, such as Facebook, uh, Twitter. Uh, we have systems that enable us to communicate quickly. We have social media platforms that enable us to engage with large number of contacts uh, quickly and easily. Now, these systems uh, also enable us to find knowledge and information uh, that can be very useful. However, do you think that these platforms and systems are also enablers uh, of uh, increased uh, uh, irrationality in society? Uh, I think if we're talking in particular about the Internet, um, I think we have witnessed in the past, say, 10 years, the final... Uh, kind of refutation of a dream that started with Leibniz in the 1670s, um, which is that we can outsource uh, our uh, a good a good bit of our uh, reasoning to machines, have the machines do it for us, and thereby make our lives better. Right? Uh, I think many of us continued to believe this uh, into the 2010s, um, but uh, it's pretty clear now that uh, that what the internet has done is mostly uh, been uh, wrought chaos <laughs> and um, made the world a vastly more chaotic and uncertain place. Um, and I think I recall very clearly in 2009 uh, the way people were talking about the power of Twitter to facilitate uh, the revolutions of the Arab Spring, um, which then, um, you know, within a very short period of time descended into just bloody massacres for the most part. Um, and then throughout the world now, uh, nobody is talking about um, the use of WhatsApp uh, in, um, in Myanmar or in uh, uh, any number of other parts of the world as something that brings people together for positive uh, political change. They're talking about these things as facilitators of genocide, right? And... Um, and so uh, again, uh, that dream has been has been squelched, um, and uh, a large part of the problem is that there are no uh, rational human beings running the show. Right? Uh, there are only uh, 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 big tech leaders who seem to, for whatever reason of naivete, to believe still in Leibniz's dream that we can just let the machines do their job and things will work out. Whereas what we really need now, and I can't, I can't state this categorically enough, is democratic oversight of uh, of particularly social media, um, which would involve, in particular, uh, transforming these technologies into a, into a public utility um, and giving, giving uh, lawmakers uh, oversight over how all of this works, what gets said, um, what gets emphasized, and so on. Because right now, uh, Twitter and Facebook are just vivid, florid uh, displays of, uh, of, the, of the destructive power of irrationality. 
I think I'm more I'm more radical about this now than I was even when I submitted the ma- manuscript to the book, uh, <laughs> which is now about a year ago. And of course, a, a lot of the book was written uh, in the wake of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, when we saw the power of the internet to stoke populism and to play on people's ignorance um, in a way that directly affected their their voting behavior and um and the horror at seeing this was a significant uh uh element in uh the early kind of um drafts of or the early uh attempts to work out the book project um and uh and 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 so it hasn't changed my view hasn't changed since 2016 though i it has hardened and and i've become i've become uh let's say bolder in the assertion of it now this seems uh, a paradoxical scenario uh, that uh, these digital systems uh, are here to make us better informed Uh, assist us uh, to find right information at right time uh, to make right uh, decisions however you use a very interesting line uh, in our conversation few moments ago uh, playing on people's ignorance so is the impact of these systems uh, totally opposite to uh, what it should be well i mean it, it's it's a surprising discovery and it's not what i would have thought if you asked me in 19 say 1993 uh, i think i first saw a web page in 1995 maybe uh, if you asked me in 1993 um um you know uh uh what would the overall effect for society be uh of a technology that everyone carries around in their pockets that gives them the ability to immediately access any known scientific fact about about the world i would have said that sounds like a good thing right? i mean obviously and the crazy thing is it is a good thing for me i mean i'm walking down the street i start thinking about quasars or something i go and i i read the wikipedia article on quasars as i'm walking down the sidewalk like i you know and i think uh 20 years ago i might have just said to myself hmm quasars maybe i'll learn someday <laughs> right and i would have kept going and the same thing for you know the reproduction of eels or whatever i just would have thought hmm uh maybe i'll learn that someday and now i learn it now i learn it right away and i think it's made me smarter um and yet it's an astounding discovery uh that all of that information is there but in general um it's uh it's 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 being rejected um and people prefer um uh to uh uh live with myths with and to use the internet to reinforce myths it's a remarkable discovery another interesting and relevant observation is that uh, pseudoscience uh, is still here uh there are many conspiracy theories uh, that are uh, still around us yeah and they're getting they're getting more and more radical and i mean right after the election of donald trump uh membership in the flat earth society at least in the united states spiked right and it's almost as if um uh the kind of mainline pseudosciences like say as uh, the anti-vax movement or creationism both of which make at least have a kind of core plausible complaint to them right um it really is weird to um inject uh gen- the you know the disease matter into your bloodstream and there's a long history of popular revolts against vaccination going back to the 19th century so that that's not at all surprising it makes some kind of human sense but with flat earthism it was almost as if um the political moment was simply such that people were like we've got to 
we've got to step it up a, le- a level with our false theories, right? We've got to go more false than we were before. Um, and that's a remarkable um, 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 lesson about how pseudoscience works, that it works not because people don't know it's not true, but because, you know, they, they want to be bold in showing how far they're willing to deviate from the truth, right? Um, um, now, of course, I, I, I should add, I, I mean, as a, as a philosopher of science and someone who's um, influenced by the well-known, uh, we call him an anarchist philosopher of science, um, a well-known figure named Paul Feyerabend, who uh, indeed um, uh, had a philosophy of science that was informed by anarchism, um, he uh, famously defended um, things like acupuncture and uh, 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 Lysenkoism in Soviet genetics and and all sorts of things that uh, that in our particular culture in this particular moment we consider uh, unacceptable. Right. Um, Fire Robin's point was, hey, you've just got to let a hundred a hundred flowers bloom and um, and 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 you never know where the contribution to overall human welfare and knowledge is going to come from. It might well come from uh, some fringe group that the establishment thinks is crazy. Now, when I'm complaining about pseudoscience, I um I I don't want to be mistaken for someone who who uh, differs from Paul Feyerabend on this point. I think he's absolutely right, um, and I think uh, folk traditions in medicine and so on need to be valued and attended to. But that's just obviously not what's going on with flat Earth theory. Flat Earth theory again is something that is defiantly in your face. Uh, about its uh, its rejection of uh, of a commitment to a shared truth. My final question uh, is uh, not related to the topics uh, that you discuss in this book. Instead, it is related to the process that you um, followed to write uh, this uh, book. Uh, at the end of the book, you outline a very interesting uh, and very important observation about self-help. And you say that self-help is not uh, in the teachings of uh, uh, self-help professionals. Self-help is about thoroughly working through everything that is good, everything that we love, everything that is important to us. Talk to us about this observation that you make at the end of this book. Well, I guess, I, I mean, you know, there's a, just like there's a peculiar relationship between philosophy and rhetoric throughout history, there's also a peculiar relationship between philosophy and self-help. Arguably, some great works of philosophy, notably Spinoza's Ethics um, in the 17th century, uh, might be understood as works of self-help. In the end, the philosopher writes them in order to make the reader, to give the reader a guide towards happiness, right? So that's a venerable tradition in philosophy. Yet, uh, it's pretty obvious that the genre of self-help as, a, as an early 20, 21st century publishing phenomenon is pretty dismal, right? Uh, why? Because it trades in nothing but platitudes, and it has a kind of, I would yeah, I mean, I would say irrational uh, 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 zeal for uh, positivity, right? Um, it has to focus on what's positive and eliminate the negative, as the song goes. And uh, the, 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 the point of this uh, afterward, because I think I, I, I discuss self-help in the, in, the, in the afterward to the book or the conclusion, is that it might well be that if philosophy is ever going to do the job of real self-help, it's going to uh, do it, it's going to succeed in doing it 
by, uh, so to speak, um, uh, splashing around in the mud a little bit by going through all the all the all the dirt and um, and and negativity that the genre of self-help in a kind of strict uh, contemporary sense um, um, uh, shuts out. And I, I think yeah, I take the the the, the model of this wonderful book. Uh, by someone named Richard Klein called Cigarettes Are Sublime um, that uh, uh, came out maybe 2000, or I don't know how long ago it came out, but it was, uh, he's, a, he's a professor of uh, French literature at Yale, um, um, and he wrote a book about the aesthetics of cigarette smoking in the history of French literature and cinema and painting. And um, he says in, I think, the preface to this book that he had been a year for years, he'd been a chain smoker. Writing this book helped him quit. Right? And in a way, you, again, kind of uh, 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 delight in um, the dark thing that you're trying to get under control rather than um, giving people platitudes about how to overcome it. Uh, Justin, we have been discussing your book, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason. Uh, we have touched upon various points and topics that you uh, discuss in this book. Uh, is there anything else that you think we should uh, discuss? Uh, something worth discussing here that I might have uh, missed? Something that I might have uh, overlooked? I think you did a very good job of of going through at least a good deal of what's important to me in the book. So, well done. <laughs> Professor Justin Smith, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Thank you very much and goodbye. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Good night.